Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Allison Duval, And I'm Kendall Martin. And we're coming to you today with an in-between seasons episode. Today's episode is a recording from a recent webinar we hosted called Angels Unaware, a Migration Policy Update. This update comes from Policy Advisor Rashad Thomas from the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. Rashad provides an overview of migration policy landscape on Capitol Hill. That's right. This webinar covers everything from DACA and public charge to refugees and family separation, all with a focus on connecting the church's public policy positions back to our baptismal promise to proclaim the good news of God in Christ, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, and to respect the dignity of every human being. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for this webinar. We're very happy to have you all here. And um, I'm Rashad Thomas. I'm the Migration Policy Advisor for the Episcopal Church Office of Government Relations. And um, it's my job to advocate here in Washington for lawmakers, before the administration, on the Episcopal Church's positions on all of the wide array of migration policy issues. And I'd like to um, introduce my colleagues, Allison and Kendall, as well. Thank you, Rashad. I'm Kendall Martin, and I'm the Communications Manager for Episcopal Migration Ministries. And I'm Allison Duval. I am Episcopal Migration Ministries Manager for Church Relations and Engagement. Very glad to be with you today. So let's get started. First of all, in prayer, I have this beautiful prayer from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops I'd like for us to say now. We, as we begin all things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Lord Jesus, when you multiplied the loaves and fishes, you provided more than food for the body. You offered us the gift of yourself, the gift which satisfies every hunger and quenches every thirst. Your disciples were filled with fear and doubt, but you poured out your love and compassion on the migrant crowd, welcoming them as brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, today you call us to welcome the members of God's family who come to our land to escape oppression poverty, persecution, violence, and war. Like your disciples, we too are filled with fear and doubt and even suspicion. We build barriers in our hearts and in our minds. Lord Jesus, help us by your grace to banish fear from our hearts that we may embrace each of, each of your children as our own brother and sister, to welcome migrants and refugees with joy and generosity while responding to their many needs to realize that you call all people to your holy mountain to learn the ways of peace and justice, to share of our abundance as you spread a banquet before us, to give witness to your love for all people as we celebrate the many gifts they bring. We praise you and give you thanks for the family you have called together from so many people. 
we see in this human family a reflection of the divine unity of the one most holy trinity in whom we make our prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Alrighty, so let's get started. First, I'd like to go over the agenda for our presentation today. We're going to start by looking at the Trump administration's take, why um, reducing immigration is such a major part of this administration's agenda. And then the bulk of the presentation will discuss how the administration is implementing its um, so-called America First agenda, looking at issues ranging from immigrant detention to the public charge rule to deportation relief programs. Um, then we're going to talk about what you can do um, in response with messaging and advocacy, and then we'll have time at the end for Q&A. All right, so the Trump administration has a, an overall view of immigration that is essentially this, it's bad. And their approach is that we have too much illegal immigration and too much legal immigration. So first we'll talk about their views of, le of illegal immigration. Um, so the administration argues that there are 11 million undocumented people in our country and their presence flouts the rule of law. And our response is, is that, of course, I mean, it's unfortunate that there are so many human beings present in our country without authorization, but nonetheless, they form an indispensable part of our local and national communities. They pay taxes. They're, they have U.S. citizen children. They take jobs that Americans don't want to, want to take. And they're a, a vital part of all of our, our lives as a, Americans. The administration also argues that undocumented immigrants undercut domestic labor. That is not true. Undocumented immigrants actually complement the labor of other workers. The economy, the job market is not a fixed thing. So whenever you have more people a part of the economy, whether they're documented or undocumented, that's people, um, as I mentioned earlier, paying taxes. Now, when it comes to legal immigration, the administration is also strongly opposed to the levels of legal immigration that we have in our country as well. The, the administration argues that the U.S. foreign-born population has reached a record 44 million in 2017, and we admit more than a million illegal immigrants to the United States each year, larger than any other country in the world, which is true, but um, that's actually lower than our peak foreign-born population 100 years ago. Um, it's also lower as a proportion of the population than many of our allied countries like Canada and Australia. Canada has 35 million people versus the United States, 327 million people, and 20% of the Canadian population is foreign born, uh, whereas just 13% of the US population is. Where Australia has 25 million people or 24 million people, a quarter of Australia's population is foreign born, Whereas, again, as I said, only 13% of the U.S. population is foreign-born. So that argument doesn't really hold much water either. And then they also, the administration also argues that the majority of legal immigrants arrive via family reunification visas, um, whereas the administration de describes it via chain migration, quote-unquote, and that that doesn't serve the interests of the United States. And our response to that is, of course, reuniting families um, serves the interests of the United States. Families belong together. Could you imagine if you had a spouse or a sibling or um, your parents overseas and you wanted them to to be with you and you couldn't have them with you? That would that would have negative impacts on your life. So of course, family reunification serves the country's interests because it makes um, our community stronger when people have their families uh, with them. And then the administration also argues that immigration radically changes the nature of the country. And on this point, we are in complete agreement. And that's a wonderful thing um, because every new generation of immigrants brings unique gifts and talents to the American family. And we celebrate and rejoice in those contributions. They bring 
you know, could you imagine a, an America without Irish pubs and Italian pizza and pierogies and, you know, taco trucks on every corner? That would, it would be, we'd be a poorer country without the, the contributions that each new wave of immigrants brings to our American family. So um, that's the reasoning the administration uses to justify its um, anti-immigration policies. So now we're going to discuss some of the policies themselves, how the administration is implementing America first. So the first thing we're going to talk about is immigrant detention. So what is immigrant detention? Immigrant detention is essentially just the practice of holding individuals in government custody for violations of our immigration laws, such as illegal entry or visa overstays during their removal proceedings. And uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement reported um, 51,302 adults in detention as of the week of September 21st, 2019, most recent numbers I could find. So how did we get here? It, we have a long history of immigrant detention going back to the Reagan administration. So this is not a, a new thing in our country's history. Of course, the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations detained immigrants as well. But the, there's a, a major difference between what any president in the last 40 years has done versus what President Trump has done. Um, the Trump administration's approach has been significantly harsher than anything we've seen in the 40 plus year history of immigrant detention. The Department of Security's Office of Inspector General um, in May 2019 and July 2019 found that migrants were detained under conditions failing federal standards um, featuring prolonged detention, overcrowding, poor hygiene and food standards. And additionally, some American citizens have even been detained wrongfully, which is completely unacceptable. So um, I'm sure many of you are interested in knowing more about the situation of family separation. Uh, family separation stemmed from the administration's quote unquote zero tolerance policy aimed at deterring attempted undocumented immigration. The administration's policy basically was to separate undocumented family units, fathers, mothers, and children who had crossed the border by prosecuting parents under federal criminal law, which would place them in federal jails. And that would then necessitate their separation from their children. The children were treated as unaccompanied minors, which meant that they were to be handed over to the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement in the US Department of Health and Human Services. And that office is tasked with providing foster care services to legitimately unaccompanied minors, which is a, another population that, that do um, attempt to come into the United States. And then the, the policy was formally enforced for the entire southern border from April 2018 to June 2018, but later reports have actually demonstrated the practice began um, at least a year earlier than the public announcement. Now, uh, the policy has come to an end. On the 20th of June 2018, President Trump signed an executive order uh, designed to end family separation specifically while continuing the zero tolerance policy by simply detaining families as intact units. And because of poor record keeping, the administration had no way to easily reunite separated parents from their children. And when it became clear that zero tolerance could not be sustained while keeping families together within the scope of um, the law, Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin McAleenan, who is now the acting um, Homeland Security Secretary, announced um, on the 25th of June, 2018, that the, the agency would cease referring every person caught crossing the border illegally for prosecution, which effectively ended the zero tolerance policy. And the courts have stepped in on the issue of reuniting these families. In June of 2018, a federal court ordered the government to reunify separated families with minor children under five years of age within 14 days of the order and families with minor children age five and over within 30 days of the order. On September 20th, 2018, the government reported to the court that it had reunified or otherwise released um, 2,000 of the 2,500 children 
over five years of age who are separated from a parent and deemed eligible for reunification by the government. However, a report released in January of this year revealed that while the Department of, Home, of Health and Human Services had previously said that the total number of children separated from their parents was less than 30,000, a new investigation revealed that the actual number of separated children was several thousand higher, with the exact number unknown due to poor record, record keeping. HHS officials had noticed a steep increase in separated children from the summer of 2017. So this, this policy had the intended result of essentially providing chaos for these families. So let's talk about the, the Flores settlement, a very important piece of this whole family separation dilemma. So the Flores settlement stipulates that migrant children must be detained in, quote, the least restrictive setting possible, unquote, and can only be held for about 20 days. It also requires child detention facilities to be licensed and inspected by the states they're in. Um, on June 21st, 2018, the Justice Department asked a U.S. District Court to alter the 2015 Reno v. Flores ruling to permit the government to hold families together indefinitely in detention. Fortunately, the judge declined the administration's request. And on the 21st of August, 2019, um, the administration announced it was ending the Flores Agreement and replacing it with a new policy scheduled to take place in 60 days. The new policy will allow families with children to be detained indefinitely until their cases are decided. It will also allow the federal government to license and inspect facilities rather than states, which it would essentially be the, the fox guarding the hen house. Fortunately, 19 states and the District of Columbia have sued the administration to block this. All right, so let's, let's discuss the asylum policy changes now. First, before we do the policy changes, let's just discuss what asylum is um, under the law. So asylum seekers are foreign nationals who present themselves at U.S. ports of entry, which include land borders, international airports, and seaports, um, seeking protection because they have suffered persecution or fear that they will suffer persecution due to race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group like LGBT, or political opinion. There are two paths to asylum. In um, affirmative asylum, an individual is in the United States currently or has arrived at a port of, a port of entry and has declared his or her application for asylum to um, U.S. Citizenship and, and Immigration Services within one year of their arrival in the country. So these are the folks who may already be in the United States or are just presenting themselves to the United States um, at a port of entry. And with those folks, the a decision about their asylum case can be made by USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services officer, asylum officer. With defensive asylum, this affects particularly undocumented immigrants who are undergoing deportation proceedings, and they present an asylum claim before a, an immigration judge. So are, it's essentially they're in the process of being deported, but they claim asylum to hopefully prevent themselves from being deported. Okay, so the Trump administration has moved um, in a number of ways to discourage asylum seeking. So in June 2018, uh, the Department of Justice implemented a policy to deny asylum to those fleeing gender-based violence, that is, violence against women, which is the predominant form of gender violence, gender-based violence, or gang violence, overturning a precedent established by a 2016 Board of Immigration Appeals decision. In, Dece in December of 2018, a federal judge overturned the limitation on asylum for gender-based violence or gang violence is inconsistent with the Immigration and Nationality Act, which governs our asylum laws. On November 9th, uh, 2018, President Trump suspended the right of asylum to any migrant crossing the U.S.-Mexico border outside of a lawful port of entry. 
in November, 10 days later, November 19th, 2018, a district court in Northern California issued an injunction against implementing that particular policy. And that injunction was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court on December 21st, 2018. In August 2019, a district court here in D.C. ruled to vacate the interim final rule establishing that this particular asylum ban because it violated the Immigration and Nationality Act. On January 2015, 25th, 2019, the Homeland Security Department announced the Migrant Protection Protocols, which are colloquially known as the Remain in Mexico policy. And this policy um, allows the government to release migrants with asylum claims to Mexico to await their asylum hearings in the United States. I, I'm not sure if you've heard this, this phrase before, but many people who know, have knowledge of Mexican government's dealings with the administration in the last several years have said that Mexico did not has not paid for the wall, but Mexico has built the wall because the Mexican government has cooperated with the Trump administration on a variety of um, detrimental policies that are essentially offloading a lot of the irregular migration the administration wants to discourage to Mexico. So not only is, is the Mexican government receiving U.S. asylum applicants and, and um, housing them along the border while they await uh, asylum hearings in the United States, they've also increased their patrols of their own southern border to prevent asylum seekers from Central America from coming through. And the administration has been very successful in pressuring the Mexican government to cooperate with them in all of these very harmful policies. As of June 2019, over 12,000 migrants have been returned to Mexico under that policy. In July 2015, or July 15, 2019, the Homeland Security Department and the Justice Department announced an interim final rule take effect on July 16th that would rule foreigners who cross the U.S.-Mexico border ineligible for asylum if they had not previously applied for asylum in countries that they had traveled through, effectively barring asylum claims on the border from nationals of Central America, Haiti, and Cuba. And on September 11, 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court permitted the Trump administration to um, implement that particular policy while the legal fight over it plays out in the courts. Going along with that, the administration has been signing these side deals, essentially, with the governments of Central America that are similar to what's called a safe third country agreement. A safe third country agreement basically is an agreement between two nations. The only one we have currently is with Canada that says that if um, someone applies for asylum in one country, they are not allowed to apply for asylum in another. And it makes sense because you don't want people to shop around for asylum, essentially, because asylum is a humanitarian thing. And if, and if they're in a safe country, it shouldn't, like, you know, Canada and the United States are relatively similar. We have well-developed economies, rule of law, states, uh, civil and human rights protections in our laws. So it makes sense for the United States and Canada to have a safe third country agreement. But the United States and Honduras are very different places. The United States and El Salvador are very different places. The United States and Guatemala are very different places. These new agreements that the federal government has signed with those three countries would require any migrants on their way to the U.S. to seek protection in those countries first. And if they have not sought protection in those countries first and been denied, then if they present themselves at the U.S. border claiming legal asylum, this is a legal right under our own law and under international law these people have, the U.S. government has decided that it will reject their asylum claims. It's a, a very disheartening policy, and they will send those people back to Central America, where rampant crime, violence, and corruption um, is driving tens of thousands of them to flee. All right, so now we'll talk about public charge. 
So um, public charge is a concept that's long established in U.S. immigration law. The first mention of public charge came in the Immigration Act of 1882. And as I have here on the screen, the language from the 1882 Immigration Act, colloquially known as the Chinese Exclusion Act, which says that immigrants who are, quote, unable to take care of himself or herself without becoming a public charge, unquote, are unsuitable for American citizenship and therefore denied. I find it very odd that this provision made its way into immigration law in 1882, when, to my knowledge, we didn't have a public welfare system. Public charge has been used to deny both immigrant and non-immigrant visas. So that's not, it's not just folks who want to permanently settle in the United States. It also empowers the federal government to prohibit admission to people who are just coming here who want to visit temporarily. All right, so now we'll go into some of the regulatory definitions, which is important to understand the changes that the administration has proposed. So in May 1999, the, the former agency Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, which is now USCIS, issued uh, field guidance on deportability and inadmissibility on public charge grounds. So that rule said that someone primarily dependent on the government for subsistence as demonstrated by either the receipt of public cash assistance for income maintenance or institutionalization for long-term care at government expense. So it specifically talked about cash assistance making someone a public charge. I list the disqualifying assistance under that regulation, which includes supplemental security income, cash assistance from TANF, um, or state and local cash assistance grants. So all of those programs would, would disqualify a person from obtaining a green card. But the guidance from 1999 explicitly excludes forms of in-kind assistance, Medicaid, food stamps, women, infants, and children, unemployment insurance, housing benefits, childcare subsidies, et cetera, et cetera. So those things were, were explicitly excluded by the previous regulation. Now with this administration, on the 12th of August of this year, USCIS announced a new rule restricting poorer immigrants from obtaining lawful permanent status. And the, the rule basically what it does is it does two things. Number one, it adds those previously excluded programs that I, I listed, so like Medicaid and WIC and, and uh, food stamps, et cetera, housing benefits. And then it also empowers immigration officials to predict whether immigrants will become a public charge in the future. I hope my passionate disdain for this new regulation is coming through through, the, through my voice because it, it essentially gives immigration officials the power to decide whether or not, not only, it doesn't, it doesn't put a, a, a mark against you just if you've already accessed any of these benefits. It allows immigration officials to deny you a green card if they anticipate in the future that you may access these programs. How in the world is an, is an immigration official supposed to have the, the clairvoyance to determine whether or not a person is going to become a quote-unquote public charge in the future? It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, if you remember the news reports from around the time the administration announced this decision, um, USCIS uh, acting director Ken Cuccinelli was on, I think, the Today Show, and and presenter asked him about the Emma Lazarus poem that's on the Statue of Liberty that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And he said, in a twist on the, the, uh, the butchering of, of, the, of the poem, yes, give me your, your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet. Well, I'm sorry, but the United, United States has never been a country that says you're only allowed to enter the United States if you're already hit a home run. 
the vast majority of us, if our ancestors had to apply, if, if these rules had applied when our ancestors were brought into to the United States, none of us would be here. So it's it's a very underhanded way to radically transform our legal immigration system. This is not dealing with undocumented immigrants. This is these are people who are following the rules and going through the process as 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 convoluted as it is as it stands under the law. These are the people who are following the rules. Uh, but the administration is adding more and more barriers to their ability to access legal paths toward for immigration. So now we'll talk about um, so-called sanctuary cities and the administration's enforcement priorities. So on the 25th of January, 2017, President Trump signed Executive Order 13768, which among other things, um, significantly increased the number of immigrants considered a priority for deportation. So under President Obama, an immigrant who had been ruled removable would only be considered a priority for deportation if they were convicted in also of a serious crime, such as a felony or multiple misdemeanor. And this policy makes sense because the administration or the, the government has scarce resources. We can't deport everyone. There, there's just not enough there's not enough money, there's not enough officers, there's not enough resources in the world for us to de deport everyone. So it makes sense for us to focus on deporting people who are actually criminals, who have harmed people in the United States, and, and who, you know, it would be more make more sense for us to prioritize, not prioritize hotel maids and farm workers and things. People who are just here living their lives, working and, and trying to, to provide for their families. Uh, but under the Trump administration, immigrants can be considered a removal priority, even if they're convicted only of minor crimes, or even if they're merely accused of such criminal act. So it significantly expands the um, class of undocumented people who are deportation priorities. So now what is a sanctuary city? In layman's terms, a sanctuary city is a municipal jurisdiction that limits its, its cooperation with federal immigration law enforcement agencies. And there are a lot of reasons why a, a jurisdiction would call itself or, or uh, designate itself a sanctuary. For one, communities that have large numbers of undocumented immigrants, they want those people who are members of their communities to feel comfortable working with local law enforcement in, in the instance that they are victims of crimes. Or, or that they're, they're witnesses to crimes and they need their assistance in prosecuting and holding those who are guilty of crimes to account. When undocumented populations or immigrant populations know that the local law enforcement in their community is cooperating with federal law enforcement on immigration, they're less likely to cooperate in ordinary routine law enforcement proceedings. And it also, it actually harms victims most because if you're an undocumented immigrant who's the victim of crime, you're less likely to go report that crime to your local law enforcement if you know that reporting your, if you're a woman, you're reporting your rape or reporting your, a burglary or reporting whatever might lead to your own deportation. So it makes a lot of sense for, and not only that, municipal law enforcement are not federal immigration law enforcement. It makes no sense for local municipal law enforcement to be involved in enforcing federal immigration law. And we already, Lord knows, we already spend more on federal immigration and border enforcement than we do on any other federal law enforcement priority combined. More than the FBI, more than the CIA. So it's not like the federal government is not, or the immigration enforcement authorities aren't, or are lacking in resources. We, Lord knows they have plenty of those. That's why a community would, would designate itself a sanctuary. But the administration has had a line against sanctuary cities from the very beginning, mostly been using 
financial coercion to discourage communities from becoming sanctuaries. The primary method has been to withhold federal grants from communities that are um, sanctuaries. And those communities naturally have, have pushed back against that legally in the courts. And on the 12th of July of this year, a federal appeals court endorsed the Justice Department's decision to give uh, preferential treatment in the awarding of community policing grants to cities that cooperate with immigration authorities. And the two-to-one opinion overturned a nationwide injunction issued last year by a federal judge in Los Angeles. The appeals court said that awarding extra points in the application process to cities that cooperate was consistent with the goals of the grant program created by Congress. Alrighty, so now we'll talk about um, some of the deportation relief programs that the administration has threatened. First, we'll talk about Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. So President Obama's DACA executive order established a program that allowed around 800,000 young adults, or also also known as DREAMers, uh, after the DREAM Act, which is which would protect them in statute law, but hasn't been passed by Congress. And these are 800,000 young adults who were brought illegally to the United States as children, and it would allow them to work legally without fear of deportation. In, in September of 2017, President Trump announced that he was canceling this executive order with effect from six months, and he called for legislation to be enacted before the protection phased out in March of 2018. And as of now, the program's cancellation was on hold by court order. A lawsuit on the issue is going to be before the U.S. Supreme Court um, during this term, which began at the beginning of this month, Supreme Court terms run from October to June. So at some point in the next, you know, sort of eight months, the Supreme Court will hear a, a case on on the cancellation of DACA. Fingers crossed that they rule the right way. <laughs> and then also fingers crossed that Congress passes the DREAM Act, but wouldn't hold my breath, sadly. All right. And then um, the other deportation relief programs would be temporary protected status. Temporary protected status, also known as TPS, is a program the federal government grants to immigrants who are in the country in the United States in the wake of national emergencies in their various countries of origin. So let's say you're from Haiti and there's an earthquake or you're from Syria and your government is collapsing and there's a civil war. If you are a a Haitian national or a Syrian national, the US federal government can give you TPS, which essentially essentially protects you from deportation, gives you work authorization and um, allows you to, you know, essentially ride it out here in the United States until conditions in your home country get better. We have many groups of people who have had TPS over many years because of whatever disaster or situation in their home countries. And many of these people have been in the in the United States for decades now on TPS. And they bought homes, they're married to US citizens, they have US citizen children, they have jobs. So it's, it's really kind of arbitrary and capricious for the administration to remove, revoke their TPS and make them deportation priorities uh, when they, they've been legal residents in the United States for decades in many cases. Um, and naturally, immigrants faced with losing their status have, have sued the administration in court. Those cases are ongoing. And then I included a picture of folks advocating for TPS for Venezuelans because the Congress, the House of Representatives, last month passed a law to grant TPS to Venezuelans. I'm sure you know very well. The Venezuelan society is a, a basket case at the moment because their government is corrupt and authoritarian. And uh, the conditions are so bad in Venezuela that the U.S. government has, the State Department has discouraged U.S. citizens from visiting Venezuela. So it seems rather strange that we would deport people back to Venezuela. And there are around 200,000 Venezuelans currently present in the United States who could benefit from TPS. 
Office of Government Relations through the Episcopal Public Policy Network, our action alert for this week is to advocate for TPS. So that was a lot, but thank you for listening. And if I was not clear on anything, or if you want more detail, or, or you have any questions, we can deal with those in the Q&A. Now we'll hand it over to um, Kendall. Thank you, Rashad. Now we will turn to how you can participate through messaging and advocacy. We know that one of the ways we can effectively address the anti-immigrant, anti-refugee narrative is through education and advocacy. A key component of both of those things is messaging. We live in a world where people can easily access information to confirm what they already believe. Confirmation bias allows us to stay within the bubble of our beliefs and opinions without actually entering in a conversation or asking questions of the other side. When we seek to change hearts and minds about what it means to be a welcoming America, we have to first set the frame. Frames are sets of choices about how information is presented. It's what we emphasize, how we explain it, and what we leave unsaid. A quick example of how word choice matters as it relates to frames. The terms illegal alien and undocumented worker invoke two different frames to discuss the issue of immigration. Using the word illegal suggests an enforcement solution and carries with it the sense of moral judgment against one who has broken the law. It can create an emotional opposition. Undocumented, by contrast, suggests a paperwork solution. It challenges one to solve a problem that, if accomplished, can activate the brain and commit the person to the solution. Each term triggers a different frame on immigration and implicitly or unconsciously filters and sorts the facts that suggest a very different set of solutions. The second component is leading with values over facts, numbers, or statistics. Finding a shared value with people who believe differently than you can open an honest and thoughtful conversation. When we talk about immigration, we can lead with values rooted in opportunity, an ideal that everyone deserves a fair chance to achieve his or her full potential. Focus on values that are part of our human rights, the rights we all have simply by virtue of our humanity, our right to equality, mobility, voice, redemption, communication, security. The next thing is to know your audience. The first thing to remember is you are not your own audience. It is normal to overestimate the degree to which other people think like we do, and this is called false consensus bias. And experts and advocates working on social issues frequently fall into this trap. People assume what moves them to action will work on the person they're speaking to, but don't fall into this trap. People are moved by common values, explanation, and solutions that they can see themselves in. Finally, tell stories. To build support and increase understanding, people need to hear stories. Stories that challenge the assumptions they hold about refugees and immigrants and their relationship to the community. The way we set the stage for sharing the facts and figures of refugee resettlement is through telling stories. Our brains are hardwired for storytelling. It's the way we understand our world, the way that we share and process information, it's all through telling and sharing stories. And you can share your personal story and still meet your audience where they are. So as you engage in advocacy and education, focus on the power of story and the values that connect all of us. I invite you to take a deeper dive into reframing the narrative by joining Partners in Welcome. We offer learning modules not only about the refugee resettlement program, but also on messaging, advocacy, and asset-based community development. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash partners and welcome and sign up for free today. We would love to have you join our community of supporters and learners. Thank you. And um, Rashad, over to you to speak about the Episcopal Church's Ministry of Advocacy. 
So I'm sure after listening to my presentation, everyone's like, oh my goodness, this is all a lot of really sad stuff, but I don't want you to feel disempowered or without hope because there's a lot you can do to make your voice heard on all of these issues that we face in the immigration space. So first thing I would encourage you to do is study church teaching on public policy issues. Uh, we have a wealth of resolutions from General Convention and other resources that are rooted in our gospel values um, related to this issue. And then you should subscribe to our Episcopal Public Policy Network alerts so that whenever a pressing issue comes up, we send out these alerts that allow you to send messages to your members of Congress and to stay up to date on everything that's going on. And then also you can follow EPPN on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with us on social media. And all of this goes together with using your voice. So sending emails to your representatives and senators, you can do that through our EPP and alerts, and then participating in local and national advocacy. Share our posts on social media, retweet us. We can amplify our reach so much more if you help us do that. And then we encourage you to do things like call into C-SPAN and your local radio stations like NPR and share your views about immigration and why immigrants are so wonderful. And then um, you can write letters to the editor in your local paper. We have lots of talking points on our website that can help you to do that as well. And then the last thing I always like to end my advocacy spiel on is a, a spin on Padre Pio's phrase, pray, hope, and don't worry. Pray, hope, and take action. In my own life, I think that as I'm in this world of politics up here on Capitol Hill, so much of what we see coming out of this, this town does not reflect my gospel values and the gospel values that the Episcopal Church stands for. So for me, staying rooted in prayer and in communion with the Lord helps me to make it through the day <laughs> and really process all the things that are, are going on that make me so upset and um, discourage me. But I, my ultimate hope is in the Lord Jesus and everything that I do is in his name and for him and through him and in him. So I just pray that you also would look to the source of all of our hope in our life, which is our Lord Jesus Christ and lean upon him for your, your joy and your hope as you reflect upon these issues. And then hopefully from going to the source of life, which is our Lord Jesus, he will inspire you through the power of the Holy Spirit to pay forward all of the, the love and the grace and the joy that he has given to you in your heart by the way you love your neighbor as yourself and particularly our immigrant brothers and sisters. So thank you. Thank you, Rashad. Partners in Welcome is EMM's newest church engagement program. It is both a ministry network and an online learning community. Through Partners in Welcome, we are mapping immigration-related ministries across the Episcopal Church, and we're also creating educational materials, toolkits, resources, and other materials to equip, encourage, empower Partners in Welcome members to welcome newcomers, become advocates, and launch and strengthen local ministries of welcome. One of the wonderful resources that we've just developed with several partners and welcome members is our brand new Supporting Asylum Seekers, a toolkit for congregations. We just did a soft release of this resource this past Monday, and next week there will be a press release from the Episcopal Church's Office of Public Affairs going out to the wider church. You can go ahead and request the toolkit at bit.ly forward slash capital EMM and capital T 
toolkit. So you can see it there on your screen. Once you submit your form, it will be automatically emailed to you. So if you don't receive an auto reply with all of the resources for download, please do let us know and we'll get it to you straight away. And we are now to the Q&A portion of today's webinar. There is a question, Rashad, for you that came in quite a bit earlier about the statistics. I believe this might have been in some of the earlier slides in the table. Where do statistics come from that validate both, the, both of the positions and the responses from the first slide or two, especially in regards to crime rates? Could you speak to that? Yeah, sure. There are a wide array of wonderful resources that compile statistics on all sorts of information about immigrants. The Migration Policy Institute provides a lot of those sorts of resources. The Cato Institute has done excellent work, particularly on the issue of so-called immigrant crime, debunking the, the notion that immigrants are have a higher crime rate than native-born Americans. And then there are a number of, well, really any, any academic demographer, labor economist, that you look at will show you that immigrant labor complements uh, that of U.S. workers. There's no, there's one very skeptical professor, economics professor called George Borjas, who has written a number of things on immigrants' impact on labor. And even he admits that immigrants overall um, increase the number of jobs and are a net benefit to the economy. His, his only thing is that undocumented immigrants might compete with people without high school diplomas. But for the economy overall, even he concedes that immigrants are a net benefit to the economy. Thank you, Rashad. There is a question from Susan who asks, are there specific bills that we should reference in correspondence with senators and members of Congress? Um, yes, absolutely. So I mentioned the Venezuela TPS bill earlier. That's, that is the subject of our action alert this week. It, it passed the House by a large bipartisan majority. I believe there are, there's majority support for in, in the Senate, but the Senate is a slow and lumbering institution, sadly. So we would encourage you particularly to go to our Office of Government Relations website and you can send letters to your senator in support of Venezuela TPS. But there are other laws that we support or other acts of Congress or, or pieces of legislation bills that we support as well, including the Grace Act, which would set the annual refugee admissions number to 95,000, which is the historic average over the last 40 years of the program. And we have a variety of overall legislative goals that maybe there's not like a, a specific bill that is working its way through the pipeline now, but any, any support you can offer to your members of Congress for comprehensive immigration reform that provides a pathway to citizenship for humane detention policies and alternatives to detention for immigration that supports the DREAM Act for the DACA population. All of that support and, and that advocacy um, plays a, is, is very important. So I would encourage you to advocate on those issues as well. Thank you, Rashad. And seeing that there are no other questions, um, and we are right about at five o'clock Eastern time, I'm going to transition us to um, some follow-up information. So Rashad, if you'll speak to, to your work in the Advocacy Ministry of the Church, and then I'll speak to EMM. Absolutely. So please follow us on social media, on Twitter at the, at the EPPN. We'll keep you informed on everything that's going on. And if you go to our website, advocacy.episcopalchurch.org, you can stay up to date on everything that we're doing. And I hope that you will use your voice to elevate all of these important issues um, that are so important to our faith. So thank you very much. 
Thanks, Rashad. And then we do really encourage all of you uh, listeners, audience members, to stay in touch with Episcopal Migration Ministries. We are EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org. On social media, we are at EMM Refugees. And then we have a, a video channel on Vimeo, Vimeo.com forward slash EMM Refugees. So thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you and God bless. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will feature a recording from our November 7th virtual workshop, what now building partnerships for a changing refugee ministry we also invite you to join us this advent for weekly podcast reflections from both lay and clergy leaders across the church and in this season of giving and thanksgiving we invite you to join in the work of welcome by making a donation to episcopal migration ministries no gift is too small and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999. Our theme song composer is Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammwenda.bandcamp.com. Thanks for joining us today, listeners. Until next time, peace be with you and all those you consider home. <laughs>